0: We're just going to jump right in. We've been in a series called uh, Our Ephesians. It's just the community, building a community, and we are halfway through in Ephesians. So we are in Ephesians 4. So as you're turning to Ephesians 4, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's Word, I invite you to do so. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, I'm going to read from the NLT And it reads Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. Let's pray again. God, thank you so much for this time and for your word. Thank you for your spirit that illuminates the scripture for our understanding, Lord. Thank you for this great reminder that we've read and now as we go through it, Lord, will you speak? Prepare our hearts to receive your word. Use me however you see fit. Whatever you want me to say, I say. Whatever you don't, I don't. And we'll be careful to give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. So Ephesians 4 is such a wonderful and challenging chapter in the Bible, and I know I say it every week, and whatever I'm reading is my favorite, Um, and it is. And while I was studying, I saw different pastors, pastor after pastor, theologian after theologian throughout history mentioned to some effect, and if I can just sum it up, um, when they get to Ephesians 4, something to the effect of if I was asked to preach one message, to a church, outside of presenting the gospel, it would be Ephesians 4. And that's not an exaggeration. I, I, I look through, and ranging from uh, Spurgeon to Edwards to Wesley to Calvin to Utley to the list goes on and on and on. If given the opportunity to preach one message to a church, that's important, to a church, it would be Ephesians 4. It is so powerful so convicting, so challenging, and as I was going through this, I just felt, I mean, just going through the list, humble, am I humble, am I gentle, am I patient, Who? I'm going to stop there, just, just the conviction of it all, and specifically because Paul is preaching to the church, and, and the hope here is always unity for him. And as he's focusing in on this list, I I started thinking about all the reasons why churches don't get along, first within the church and then with other churches. And when I say church, I mean Jesus-believing churches that believe in the true gospel. I'm not talking about cults or anything. I'm just talking about here at Renew or here, the churches here who proclaim that. And the need for the church to put others first is a call to unity. And it's so important. And it has been an issue since the very beginning. Again, this church or these seven churches that make up the, the turkey route, if you will, of Ephesians. We title it Ephes, or to Ephesus and we title it Ephesians. The focus, and I keep putting... Pointing to this over and over again is that we have Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians who hated each other forever, and now they're a church, and they're under 10 years old. So since then, the church has been at odds with one another in weird and awkward ways. And one of the earliest church splits that I could find post-Reformation was an argument on how many angels could fit on the tip of a sewing needle. Okay? Okay infinite or there was a limited number. And the church split. And I won't tell you what denomination it is because then you'll say, see, it's that denomination, then something somethingers. Um, but really you're going to fight over that. And a denomination became two denominations over that. And then since I can help myself, I looked at another one. There was another church split because an elder of the church received a smaller piece of ham at a feast than someone else his grandson. When the churches went from singing from psalms, psalms in the Bible, to hymns, hymnals, there was church splits. Notice I didn't say from going from hymns to southern rock or to pop or to rock or to rap or contemporary. From psalms to hymns. And I would read you what one congregant wrote about the disastrous Music of hymns. Has anyone ever called a hymn disastrous? The list goes on from the color of the carpet and on and on and on and on. And notice that not one of those things that I had mentioned were a core tenet, a pillar, a foundational truth that people argued about. It was opinion, specifically, it was preferences. It wasn't, again, not a foundational truth found in scriptures. We will get there in a moment. Paul mentions some of the foundational truths when he mentions the one from verse, verses four and six. One body, one spirit, one. We'll talk about that in a moment. Not anything of that. He just simply, people have split over things, even in their marriages, for ridiculous things. But within this church within the church in general, splitting over a piece of ham. Now, you may be sitting here and say, surely not. Renew. No, we've not split over ham. Not yet. Don't eat ham anyways. Okay, there. But, um, but just the, this, as I was going through this, I, and, and perhaps it's because I'm a bit sensitive this morning, to be honest with you. Um, Yesterday, I was able to be part of celebrations of life for Mary Clompton, 78 years of age, and little baby Boomer Webb, who was born into the arms of our Heavenly Father. And yet, at both services, there were believers in Christ from different churches, different backgrounds, different, 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 and yet, we were united under two common causes, one, Jesus Christ, and the second, the celebration of life. And I am sensitive this morning. But just thinking about that, nothing else mattered except Christ. I presented the gospel as best as I could at both of them, of the services. And yet, there, as we celebrated two lives, different backgrounds, united for two causes, I would say. Again, Jesus Christ and the celebration of life, even a brief life. But the unity in Christ is key, and Paul is begging the church at this point. If, you, if, if we were to read this into Greek, you would see the emphasis that he's putting on whenever he says the word beg. It's not like, yeah, I'm begging you. He's on his hands and knees literally begging the church, begging the church. And yet what we see over and over again, I had mentioned uh, marriages, but even with families, with siblings, with relationships, with jobs, on and on and on, that compels in light to the relationship with Christ and with other believers, which that comes from. I just want to draw to our attention, just as we reflect over the last three chapters that we have gone through, that in chapter four, not up until this point, Paul has not commanded the church to do anything yet. The first three chapters, he's simply presenting the gospel, reminding the gospel. Last week I told you he started a prayer and then all of a sudden he goes, oh yeah, one more thing while I'm at it before I pray, excuse me, God, Gentiles, you're saved too if you put your trust in Jesus, no longer live that way. And then he prays for the church. And now from chapters four through six, he gives us 50, over 50, I think it's 51, commands suggestions, but all with the reference of, please, I beg you, start with this. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're part of a church, you need to be part of a church. I beg you of this. He goes from the theology of the gospel to the practical application of the gospel. He goes from calling to conduct. We have a tendency, I believe, that we'll take the first three chapters. We may not say, I'm taking the first three chapters and then four, five, and six and separating them. But I do believe that we have this in us that we recognize that we're saved by grace and then we'll take chapters four, five, and six and say, here's all the things I need to do in order for God to love me. It's not true. Nowhere in the scriptures it says, do this and this and this and this Yes, we're supposed to respond to the gospel. Yes, we accept the the gift of the, the grace and mercy. But we're not then supposed to live our life to make God proud of us. Of course, we want at the end for him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. But if all we're ever trying to do is good things so we get things, we've missed the gospel. And this is what... Uh, I'm afraid of and this is what I've seen over and over again this is I have to pay God back I have to prove my love that thinking again is not in the scripture it actually I would suggest sabotages what Christ has done for us when we live out the gospel it should come out of the abundance of what God has done in us it's not oh I have to go do this it's I get to God asks us to be holy. Oh, man, I got to go be holy again? No, we get to be holy. It's such a gift. But when we live out of this abundance of the gospel that changes everything, that's when all of a sudden our personal preferences of what we like and dislike fades into the background. Not that we become robots or anything like that. Not Being unified doesn't mean uniformity. That doesn't mean we all have to start playing hockey. You should. I mean, if you want to be holy, let me tell you. (laughs) But do you know what I mean? I I, I make a joke out of it to break the tension, but we don't all have to be the same, but we all have to serve the same Lord Jesus Christ. And if there's a preference, if it's an argument on preference, are you willing to say, you go ahead? It's okay, you go ahead. Because the reality is, is we are comfortable with what we've already experienced. That's why if you've grown up in the church, you are comfortable with that pastor, that church, the way baptism is done, the way that communion is done every Sunday, once a year, every other quarter, fill in the blank. Some of you have maybe have gone to a church that the drums were the devil, the guitar is leading you to Satan. Some of you have... Only known the organ. Some of you only know a drummer and the guitar. I mean, the variety of backgrounds. But what I'm suggesting here is beyond that, that preference, living out what has already been given to us in Christ, should just bleed out of us. And that's why he gives us a list in order to live this way. It's living out, again, what has already been given to us. This is both coming together, our behavior and our belief coming together. The same gospel that saves us is the same gospel that gives us life here on earth. God doesn't just save us for the end date. He saves us now. The gospel saves and transforms. And we are called to live out the gospel And in the next several chapters, what we will see is Paul gives us specific areas in our lives in the roles that we can play that while we're here on earth to live them out, to live out the gospel, a life as he calls it, worthy of our calling. Again, in the next several chapters, uh, Paul will give the readers very specific areas to live these out. So later on in chapter four, we'll see that the Calling in contrast to the way we used to live before Christ. That's how we, we present the gospel in our lives. He, he ends with a list saying, uh, whatever comes out of your mouth, it can't be bitterness, rage, anger. The gospel should change that. We should live that out. What is on the inside will always find a way to come out of your mouth. Have you noticed that? And then in chapter 5, when we turn to chapter 5, the way that we live out the gospel is the way that we worship. And more than songs on Sunday, more than the scripture reading and the preaching and the fellowship on Sunday, but the way that we live our life in worship, the way that we bring glory to God in all that we do. Paul also talks about three specific relationships in which we can live out the gospel And a mutual surrender of both belief and our actions. One is in marriages. Did you know that your marriage should reflect the gospel? And as parents, the way that you parent should reflect the gospel. I don't know about you, but I was already convicted on that. I have some apology. I have to apologize to some of my kids. Am I willing to do that? And then he closes that chapter by slaves and masters. And in our current application, that means the authority structures in our life, our bosses, the leaders, et cetera. The way that we treat those that, work for us or that we work for or that have some kind of leadership? Do we present the gospel? Or are we living out the gospel in that way? And six, in chapter six, oh, wait till we get to chapter six, living out our calling in light of the spiritual world and in the battle that's taking place all around us. And then finally, chapter six, how do we live out the gospel in our suffering? To steal from future sermons, I, I will. I have noticed more and more that the suffering that we experience here on earth and the endurance in which we hold to points to the gospel so much more than I ever had anticipated. The way that we respond to hardship is the way that we point to the gospel. And, and I haven't even got into sharing the gospel with our mouth. Very important. But in order for all that to be lived out of us, Paul starts with how the church should get along. I was listening to Dr. Bob Utley on this. And and I'm almost tempted. If I was brave enough, I would just play his sermon from the 90s. He was a Southern Baptist preacher, professor, evangelist, theologian. He did it all. And he eventually got kicked out of his denomination because he wouldn't sign a creed. And the reason he wouldn't want to sign a creed is simply because he wants to present the gospel. That's it. And I'm not picking on Southern Baptist, he just I found him early on in my ministry and simply because he offered a free commentary and if there's free I'm in it. <laughs> but just to hear this and he and he points this alone, he said, "Paul starts with how the church should get along." And then he said, "You turkeys, I guess when you're 70-something preaching, you can call people turkeys. Or you can quote them and then call people turkeys. You turkeys, get along. But why is it so hard for us to get along? How, how is it that we can get so blinded in our personal preferences that we miss what we are called to do as a church body And not just here, but the church body at large. We get so blinded by what we are used to think, but what we are used to thinking of what God used to do. This is how God always does it. Why would he do anything different? We are so used to what God does, we assume sometimes it's the only way God can do it. So he that's why Paul introduces this understanding in verse 1. Therefore, since the three chapters I gave you, therefore, I a prisoner for serving the Lord. I just stopped there just thinking about Paul. If, I was, if I'm ever accused of doing something that I didn't do, or if I'm ever accused for doing wrong when I did right, I would whine about it. Let me tell you about that. I think that's a, ever since I was a kid, I always used to say, that's not fair. Anyone in here ever? Okay. Anyone have kids that say that? That's not fair. But Paul doesn't say it's unfair that I'm a prisoner. He just simply says, I am a prisoner for serving the Lord. I'm a prisoner to the Lord. This is what the Lord wants. And what is the first thing he says? Please get me out of jail. Send me a cake with a file so I can get out of here. No, he begs you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. It's so powerful. He's begging. Imagine hands and knees grappling at your feet, begging you, please lead a life worthy of the calling. Just to note, this this word of worthy that he uses in Greek is axios. It's where we get the word access. The earth's access. Or, since I haven't talked about cars since last week, axles on a car. The purpose of an axle of the car is to transfer the power to the wheels and be in balance. For the rotation. I found... Essentially, what what this means, this axis, this balance, is that there's something that matches, that is equal on both sides. So I'm going to read, instead of worthy, I'm going to use the word that is balance. So let me read that to you. Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life that is in balance of your calling, for you have been called by God. That is the balance between what you say you believe in And what you do with your life, are they in balance? Going back to cars, just going to the axle. The axle connects the output of your transmission, transfer case, whatever it is, depending on four-wheel drive, whatever. If it's in balance, great, smooth ride. If it's out of balance, then it's a rough ride. Anyone ever drive a car when one of the tires, one of the axles is not in balance? It's awful the whole way. But it only takes one axle, one tire to be out of balance for you to fill it this entire ride to be awful. Just, it's just terrible. And this balance is between what Paul is talking about, worthy, this balance. He's saying that what you say you believe in, the gospel that you say you believe in, are you, are you living your life that's in balance of that? Does your actions match your words? And he uses the word worthy because it's a connotation of this axis words means it has to be. There's no question about it. And he goes on, because you've been called by God. It's that simple. And then he goes through and he gives us a list. Paul tells us that the importance of unity in a church, not just the local church, but the church at large. And I believe this, again, has been a struggle since the beginning. And Christ has established his church and each local church can fall into the trap and think they are the ones, we are the ones, we're doing it right. It's because each church is made up of individuals and the individuals think we're just doing it right. And the reality when we say that, we may not say that out loud, when we think that, what we really mean is this is what makes us feel comfortable. So what is required for practical ways for unity? What it means is that what we say we believe in, the person of Christ should be matched with the way that we live, this balance. And there's five, of, five items that Paul points to us. And just quickly, it's through the first uh, verses two and three. He says, the first one, always be humble and gentle be pace, patient with each other. Making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit. Binding yourselves together with peace. So there's five. I wrote down five of the items that he said. Humility. Gentleness. Patience. Making allowance or bearing with one another. And effort. So humility, humility also can be translated to lowliness, Lowliest of mine. During this time, and I know I've mentioned this uh, several weeks back, the word humility in the Greek before Jesus came was considered a bad word. It was a slanderous word, you humble person, you weak sauce is essentially what it meant. It was a derogatory remark. During this time, uh, the soldiers, the Roman soldiers and the Greek soldiers before them, they were tested, and one of the markings would be level of humility. And if you got a high score on humility, you would not make a good soldier. Humility was a word used for people who were slaves. It wasn't until Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that humility became a virtue. It's quite interesting that Jesus takes what was true, then the world comes and takes it and twists it upside down, and then Jesus puts it right side up. Humility. It's not thinking less of yourself, C.S. Lewis says, it's just thinking of yourself less often. Humility. So the first thing, always be humble. How does this play out? Do you always have to get your way? In all things, can you consider someone else? Then he moves on to gentle, gentleness, gentleness or meekness, depending on your translation. The word in Greek is paratis. It's the process of taming a wild animal. I think for me, and I, I probably have mentioned this before, one of the greatest attributes of Jesus, well, they're all great, but the ones that I really admire is Christ meekness. Because meekness isn't weakness. It's just power under control. This prazos word, it actually means the process of taming a wild animal, a wild horse or a wild ox. You break that horse and make it useful. But see, the interesting thing about this is there's this powerful horse and that has been bridled and it's now self restrain And it's controlled. And then as as you consider this, as you think about this, what is the most difficult thing for you to control? Yourself. James says your tongue. But this taming of the animal, this meekness word, it actually means that the animal retains all of its strength, but the strength is under control. This is huge. If you have a horse, and it's a wild horse, and you break the horse, do you want it to be wimpy? After, If you were to have an ox, this great, powerful ox to plow the field, once you break the ox, do you want it to be soft? No, it's it's strength under control. It's the fire hydrant, if you will. So much pressure, but yet this little cap can control the power. A side note, there was a time... In Christian circles, it's probably in the 80s and 90s where I grew up, that there was an attempt to take away masculinity from young boys and make them into little girls. And I'm not talking about physical changes. It's just, stop being so wild and ruly. Sit there and be quiet in the pew. Any any man in here ever got told that in the pew? Anyone get flicked in the air? <laughs> man. Both of them. Why do you think my ears are funny? But, the, but there's this attempt to, to take away the masculinity from young boys, and that was wrong. Don't stop making little boys into men. Make little boys into grown men who are under control. It's the same thing for Women. It's, it's, you don't take away who, who you're meant to be. Also, on the side note, and we'll get into this, it's not once you become a Christian, you lose your personality. You don't all become just little fill-in-the-blanks. Christ then heals your personality to be the full expression of what he desired you to be. And just as we could just consider this gentleness, this meekness, perhaps one of the greatest displays in the Bible of gentleness or meekness with Jesus, I'm reminded of when Jesus reminds them, the disciples, how much power he actually has. The scene is that they're in the garden where Jesus is being betrayed. Peter cuts off the ear of the soldier. You remember that? We'll read from Matthew 26, just verse 52 and 54. So Peter cuts off the ear, verse 52. Jesus says, put away your sword, Jesus told him. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send them instantly? But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that that describe what must happen now? most translations outside of the NLT where it says, don't you know, I could ask my father for thousands. It's, it's actually, your translation may say 12 legions. One legion is 6,000 angels, six times 12, 72. I should have done them. Yeah, that's 72. (laughs) 72,000. So let me just read it that way. Don't you realize I could ask my father for 72,000 angels to protect us and he would send them instantly? That's power. But here's power under control. Here's gentleness. Here's meekness of Jesus. Verse 54. But if I did, if I use that power, if I use my strength, which I have complete access to, how would the scripture be fulfilled that describes what must happen now? That's meekness. So meekness in relationship to the church that Paul is begging us is, just because you're the smartest person in the room, the strongest person in the room, you don't have to get your way. Remember, this is a church that's full of people coming together. And the highlight and the focus has been the Jewish Christian and the Gentile Christians. But the, it was made up of all different ethnic backgrounds. It was made up of all different classes. It was made up of people from different tribes. They're going to start coming here, speaking different languages. Who, who, whose language, who gets to make the decision? And what Paul is begging is not only be humble, but that great power, position that you have... Keep it under control. Don't lose your power. Don't lose your strength. But when you drink from the hose, don't turn it on full blast. Just do you always have to get your way. The third one, patience. Then he says, always be humble, gentle, be patient with each other. Whew. Really? Is there anyone in here? You don't have to raise your hand. Is there anyone in here, just generally speaking, don't take a look, especially if it's your spouse, that gets on your nerves? You some of you cheated and you looked at each other. I just told you not to. That you have to be patient. Maybe it's a spouse, a child, a friend. The word is actually long suffering. It's a it's a it's it's in reference to what Christ did on the cross. I think I had mentioned this before, one of my early professors, um, whenever he assigned us tons of homework in his first year, and people were complaining and saying, Oh, that's so tough. He goes, That's not tough. The cross is tough. Get over it. Oh, okay. Long-suffering patience, patience with for people. Patience is actually the outward display of what's already going on in your heart towards someone. It's not just being patient. It doesn't mean I will stay over here and not even look at you. Uh, We'll just agree to disagree. That's not what patience means. No, it means I will love you and join in the biblical definition of tolerance. I know the world has hijacked tolerance and messed it up. But patience is tolerance not to allow people to do sin, whatever you want goes. It, unity is never in sin, ever, ever. Patience is never in sin. It's saying, I'm going to come alongside you and walk, you, walk with you through this, whatever it is. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm not going to beat you over the head. I'm going to be patient. It means I'm going to enter into the struggle with you and point you to the truth and love together, pointing to Christ. Not from the sidelines talking bad about you. It's not us versus them. One of the hardest things that I think it's easy for us to do is to point and click and say, I would never do that. That's wrong. Instead of, let me join you in this struggle this is this is the introduction to discipleship and we're going to talk about discipleship quite a bit in the next several chapters. But just thinking discipleship or discipleship making is coming along someone and doing life together and pointing them to the scripture and pointing them to Christ. That's what discipleship is. We all need to be discipled. We all need to be discipling people. But that's what brings in this patience. I will long suffer with you in whatever the struggle is even if it's a disagreement. Going back to Dr. Bob Utley, he said, the strongest way we tell Jesus that we love him, we love those from whom he died for. And if we are not loving those for whom he died, please don't talk about how much you love him. While we were still sinners... Even Peter later on says that the Lord is not slow in what we know is slowing. He's being patient so that not one will be lost. Then the next one that, that he mentions that Paul is mentioning. You see how this is playing out in the church? Always be humble and be gentle, be patient with each other. Then The next part, making allowance for each other's faults, which means bearing with one another. As long as I keep a record of wrong, as long as the other person is more wrong than I am, or their sin is more egregious than mine, as long as they've hurt me more times, you've heard it all. That Making allowance means if someone has sinned against you, you forgive them. Even if you're at a disagreement, you bear with one another. It goes in line with Patience, and it goes in line with this peace that he's talking about. Keep yourself united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. It's actually uh, the two words, making allowance and peace, goes hand in hand. I like the the translation of this word, spare no effort. So in verse 3, spare no effort to keeping yourself united in the spirit, binding yourself together with peace. Spare no effort. Do what it takes. Sometimes looking at the opposite words helps us understand the original content of what Paul is saying. Spare no effort. Make every effort united in peace. The opposite word means vindictive. So let's read it as if Paul's telling us the opposite. Make every effort to be vindictive. We wouldn't say that. So the opposite is spare no effort. Don't take a shortcut. Every effort to keep yourself united in the spirit. And just a side note, just notice here that he says... In verse 3, make every effort, spare no effort, to keep yourself united in the Spirit. Keep yourself, meaning that we're already united in the Spirit. We're not generating this. We're not creating this on our own. We're not even supposed to really take it to a next level. Now We're getting into theology. We're just supposed to simply keep the unity that's in the Spirit And if we are surrendering our lives to Christ, it will come naturally. And then together with peace, make every effort to make peace. Now this peace is an interesting one because peace is not like flowers and butterflies and everything goes. Peace sometimes needs to be done with action, hard action and difficulty. Sometimes the only way to keep peace in your home is to confront. And that's hard. And for some, some people who've grown up in a home or in a church, for me, for my wife Natalie, we grew up in homes of divorced parents. And our example of times that are difficult is there's a clash and a separation. Well, that's the false. There can be a clash. You don't have to agree on everything. That's what Paul is talking about. But there's peace. There's something that binds you together. That's why for a long time, confrontation would be so difficult because every confrontation led to a disaster in a relationship. That's not what true peace is. It's being unified together. Don't hold back. It's easy to give up. The moment you feel like giving up and throwing in the towel... R- reread this. Always be humble. Am I giving up or am I being humble? Am I giving up or I'm being gentle? Am I being patient? See, th- this emphasis that Paul is putting on actually points us back to when Jesus was praying for us. It's, I think, for me personally, it's the clearest time that we see Jesus praying directly for us. He prays for us. I mean, us right now, All believers throughout time. In John 17, 20 through 23, we read his prayer in the garden. He says, I am praying not only for these disciples, the one that were immediately with him, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That's us. If you're a believer here this morning, Christ is praying for you. And what is he praying? I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. The world is watching how we treat each other. And Christ is praying specifically, I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. It's interesting now, that's exactly what Jesus is praying for, for this oneness in the Father, that this glory that he passes on so that we are one. It's the same exact word that Paul is now using. It's almost as if, because he is, Copying Jesus' prayer and putting it in the application of the church. Verse 4. You'll notice that Paul now, for verses 4, 5, and 6, he uses one. He uses it seven times. And three of those seven times represents the Trinity. Three persons, one God. So, now we've moved away. Now he's moving away. I'm begging you, please... On the open-handed issues that don't really matter, don't make them closed issues. On the closed issues, don't make them open. And here are some of the closed issues. Verse 4, there's one body, one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is overall, in all, and living through all. You see that correlation between what Jesus is praying? First, the submission to God is a singular God in three persons, the Trinity. One God, Father who provides salvation, accomplished through his Son in the power of his Spirit. We have to believe in this truth. We can't allow other gods. We can't worship other things. That's not the unity that the world is saying, oh, just accept everything, everything's okay. No, that's just dumb. We can't worship something other than God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible. We are to be guided in our faith. It's not many roads lead to salvation. It's not. It's through Christ. That's why he's saying, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future, just one. Just one. Uh, One of the illustrations that I heard is the describing why, why does it have to only be Jesus? That seems so unfair. And so it's an exclusive club. No, it's inclusive for everyone who puts their trust in Jesus. And then the, the other complaint that i have been talking to a couple of people about who are just right there on the edge of, should I believe or should I not believe you? mean Okay. So I, I'm good with Jesus. Do I have to do everything that he says? I mean, that's what I want to say. My patience is like, you know, but okay, long-suffering. Take every effort. Yes, and here's the illustration. Let's just say you're a fish in the water. You are restrained to the water. The fishes who think that they're better than the water who go out on the shore, on the beach, are the ones that die. There's a reason why... If you're looking at it as you're just trying to escape the confines of Christ, he's actually protecting you. That's why one glorious hope. That's why later on Jesus also says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. That's what he's talking about, this oneness. And and it's the oneness in the Father, in the Spirit, and through in one. And then he goes on, verse 5. There is one Lord, one faith. One baptism, and he's talking about the baptism of the Spirit when you believe, when you believe in Jesus Christ, you filled with the Spirit, we then baptize as an outward expression of what's taking place on the inside. It's a symbol. Again, it, my wedding ring is a symbol of our marriage. It's not the actual marriage. Thank goodness I lost it for like a week. But this is what Paul is saying. If we do this as a church with the reminder that we're one body, one spirit, one glorious hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is in all. That's the unity of the church. That's specifically what Jesus has been praying for. It's so important to remember we're not only saved from something, we're not just simply saved from hell, but we're saved into someone. We have a new identification through Jesus' death and resurrection. We've been taken out of death into salvation in Christ. We've been baptized in him, baptized of the Spirit. Resurrection. That's why but we even fight over how we should baptize. Three forward, one back, upside down backflip, or <laughs> sprinkle. And, and I understand the water baptism does mean submerge. That's why we do that. My brother, I can pick on him. There, he, he, was baptized, he was doing baptisms at his church a couple of years ago. And there was one lady, a young girl that had a disease, and I would say the name of the disease, but I can't say words with more than three syllables if they're diseases or in general. She she would have an allergic reaction to water. And she'd get all boil, and it could actually kill her. It happens to like point-something percent of the population. She brushes her teeth without water. No water, doesn't drink water, I I don't know how it works. And the church that he was serving at at the time, you must put them all the way under. And he said, then I'm going to kill her, and I'm not going to do it. So he sprinkled her. When she wore a hat, so the water wouldn't actually touch her hair, even though she said, no, it's okay, I can handle a little bit. I'm not going to kill you, is what he would say. But you see that just this is our doctrine, you must do it this way. I don't see those as core beliefs. And and we we can go round and round. The, the point is, is my brother so desperately wanted this girl to experience baptism. Not because that's what saved her, but because she came to Christ. Just don't let the little things get in the way of the overall arching goal that we are supposed to present the gospel to the world. Sarah and Kayla reminded us the hands and feet. We meet a physical need and a spiritual need. People need to come and to be saved. This oneness that Paul is talking about. And I don't think that there's any more clear evidence of this oneness that we're supposed to experience than receiving communion together. And that's what we're going to do this morning. You are invited to join us for communion if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. The Bible says do not receive communion if you're not. If you're not a believer in Jesus, then don't join us for supper. But if you want to join us for the Lord's Supper, I would love to talk to you about it. But as we sing a couple more songs, as Tim and the the worship team comes up and leads us in a couple more songs, just, just go through this list in your mind from verses two and three. In what ways can I work on being humble? What ways can I be gentle or meekness? Who do I need to be more patient with? Who do I need to make allowances of faults? Am I making every effort to keep myself united in the spirit? Am I a peacemaker? Just reveal that. No, I don't suggest that we're ever going to be perfect. I'm not even suggesting that we have to agree on anything. The color of the carpet or anything like that. But on the main things, let's keep them the main things and let's be united. The world needs to see us believe in Jesus Christ and live it out. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time and for your word. And as we uh, hear from your your word from written by Paul, by your spirit, Lord, about... He's begging us to lead a life worthy or in balance of our calling. Lord, will you help us do that? Will you help us live a balanced life where we don't just say we believe, but we live that way? Thank you, Lord, as we go through this list of things, of ways to respond. um, Thank you that this list is what you showed us, that you were so humble and gentle and patient that you made allowances for our faults that you make every effort for us to be united in you by sending your son and that you bind it together in peace so Lord as we sing a couple more songs to you will you help us prepare our hearts to receive communion to be reminded of what it cost in order for us to be one with you thank you in in our in our walk with you the ups and downs that you are constant